0: The simplest way to define worship, it all starts with the great commandment, which is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now when we think about love, the heart and soul part is easy. We're all used to saying, I love you with all my heart. Turn to person next to you and say, I love you with all my mind. God wants us to love him with our whole being, heart, soul. That's the emotional connection, which we definitely experience today in our worship. But God wants us to love him with our mind, and he wants us to put all of our effort into it. That's the part I'm going to stretch you with today. Today we're going to focus on the mind part, the knowledge part of worship. So I'm going to do a fair amount of teaching about what worship is from God's perspective. And just by way of reminder, each week we're giving you a big idea about worship. Last week's uh, idea was this. Let's say this together. True worship is by God and for God that God invented worship, it's really all about him. Everything God has ever done, everything he's doing, everything he's ever made, great and small, seen and unseen, all has an ultimate purpose, and that's worship. In fact, one of the simplest ways to define sin in scripture is falling short of that ultimate purpose of bringing glory to God. Think about that. That's Romans 3.23. Say this with me. Everyone has sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. So anything that comes into our life that forfeits our ability to serve in our true and primary calling of worship God, that's a great way to understand sin. Falling short of that highest of all calling. So today's big idea is this. It's not enough to worship the God that you know. We must know the God that we are to worship. Say that with me. It's not enough to worship the God that we know. We must know the God that we are to worship. And, and there's a big difference, isn't there? We create God in our image. We do it all the time. And we have to understand that our view of God shapes not only our life and our morality, but our worship. A.W. Tozer, one of my absolute favorite books, one of the most significant influential books in my life when I was having a grace awakening to God in my early 30s is the book, The Knowledge of the Holy. And I'd really recommend that as some reading for you to do during this series. This is one of the things Tozer writes the history of mankind will show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship then is either pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. And for this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God Himself. And the most portentous fact about any person is not what he or she at any given time may say or do, but what they in their deep heart conceive God to be like. If we're going to be true worshipers, if we're going to worship God at the height that He deserves then we need to understand exactly who he is and that's going to grab our attention for the next few weeks and I want to take you to Jeremiah chapter 9 and as we do we're going to ask this question what inspires your worship what is it that moves you when you worship Jeremiah 9 beginning at verse 23 This is what the Lord says Let not the wise boast in their wisdom, or the strong boast in their strength, or the rich boast in their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this that they understand and know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness justice and righteousness on the earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament it says, this is what the Lord says, or thus saith the Lord. He's about to make a declarative statement. This statement is so important. It's got bookends of thus saith the Lord. It says, this is what the Lord says. In other words, pay attention to this, it matters. And then at the end he says, more than that, I declare this. And when God declares something, it is unshakable, it is unchangeable. And so these two verses are packed with things that God says is non-negotiable and utterly essential for true worshipers. That's how important it is. Now, you'll notice the word boast several times in here. The Hebrew word for boast can also be translated as glory. To glory in. In other words, that which I find worth. So we're gonna replace the words boast with glory today, and I'd like you now to say this with me. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise glory in their wisdom, or the strong glory in their strength, or the rich glory in their riches. But let the one who glories, glory about this, that they understand and know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. So again, the question, what inspires your worship? What is it that brings about a sense of glory when you look at your life and relates to your worship? What inspires your worship? Well, I'll tell you what what inspires most of our worship. It's what God has done for us, right? It's about knowledge, (laughs) it's about vitality, it's about abundance, and isn't that exactly what the saying shouldn't motivate our worship when he says, not in your wisdom? and not in your strength and not in your riches. You see, this is really important. Get this down. God isn't good just because he's good to us. He's just good. And the problem is when we worship God only based on the good circumstances in our life, our worship, our gratitude disappears when those things disappear and they will. God says, that's not what, My life with you is about. And so, once again, because it's so prevalent, this is an opportunity to hit up against the health and wealth movement that tells you that that's exactly what God wants to do in your life, and that's the basis of your worship. And if you worship well enough, you will have knowledge, you will have physical health, and you will have wealth. And God says that's not what it's about at all. Don't glory in that. You know why when that is the basis for our worship, it can mislead us? Because we will worship whatever gives us those things. We will even reinvent God so he fits into an idea of a God who would meet us those things. And if Jehovah won't do it, then we'll run after other gods. That's the story in Jeremiah 9. Jeremiah is the prophet that is speaking to Jerusalem in the waning years of their disobedience. And they have gone after other gods. Why do you do that? Why would somebody worship a different god? Because they're looking for something that works. They want it to provide what they expect in their life. Why did the worshipers of Malak offer their children to sacrifice? Because they believed it would bring crops. It would bring wealth. We worship what works for us. And when we glory in our knowledge, our wisdom, and we glory in our vitality... And in our wealth, you'll worship what brings you that. And in the same way Jeremiah was speaking to the children of God who had left and departed from true worship, his words ring to us today. The basis of your worship, your glory, is not in what you have. God isn't good just because he's good to you. He's just good. To glory in our circumstances makes them the object of our worship. How interesting. Now, I am working very hard in this really part of the series to get us away from the self-centered nature of our worship because we then become the object of our worship when it's about what we receive. We will move forward and talk about our heart's desire, our coming to God with our needs. That is a critical aspect of worship. I'm trying to help you understand that if we come only on that basis, then we will never be true worshipers. We will never experience what God called us to be. It's in getting the first things first that everything else falls together. Like you, I am a broken person. And when I come to God, it is so often about my concerns, my needs, my wants. And God says, that's not where worship begins. That's not where your life begins. That's not even where getting those needs met begins. So don't glory in them. So what do we glory in? Let's go back to the verse Let the one who glories glory about this that they understand and know me. Let's just look at those two words because they matter a lot. The word to understand means to consider intently, to comprehend. So when God says, I want you to understand me, he's saying you should take glory in the fact that you have pursued the knowledge of me. He's talking about that part that is with all my mind. It is a devoted search of the things of God, of knowing God to the point where we comprehend Now, God is in many ways, according to Scripture, unknowable. We are to have awe and wonder. But trust me, you are to know what God has revealed about Himself. (laughs) There's plenty that we can understand, but you are, as His child, to understand what He has revealed to you. And that will never happen just by experience. That happens through the word of God, by hearing what God has revealed about himself in his word. So there's effort there, right? It's the discipline of knowing and understanding. But the word know is more intimate. It means friendship or relationship. I love this. God is saying, look, this is the basis of your glory that which you were made for, that is the essence of who you were meant to be, this is the basis for it, your knowledge of me and our relationship with one another. And so that leads us to this point. God himself should be cause enough for our worship. God Himself should be cause enough for our worship. The depth of our worship is determined by two things. The level of our knowledge and understanding of God and the intimacy of our walk with him. So let's wrestle with the implications of that a little bit. How have you pursued God this past week? How have you spent time in his word pouring over it letting him reveal who he is to you in ways that are deeper and deeper. And how intimate have you felt with God? How much time have you spent with him in terms of intentional relationship? Because that's what God created us for, right there. God created us to know him intimately, to be in relationship with him. That's how we are set apart from all of creation. Psalm 19.1, we say it all the time, all creation is for worship. It all declares the glory of God. Everything worships, but God created us, the human race, to worship in a very unique way. You go through the book of Genesis, you see each day God finishes creating. He says it's very good, it's very good, it's very good. Makes man He says, not good, not not done yet. Makes women, partners, male and female in his image. And then he says it's very good. But when God created Adam, besides forming him from the stuff of creation, which is how everything happens, if you look at the language in Genesis, it says he brought forth, which means he brought forth out of the elements of the earth. He brought them forth, called them forth. And he does the same thing with Adam. He he crafts him out of the earth. But then he does something that he hadn't done in any other act of creation. What does he do? He breathes into him the breath of God. And at that point it says man became a living soul. Here's what sets you and me apart from the rest of creation. Believe it or not, I know it's hard to believe. I got soul. (laughs) You've got soul. We can worship the Father not just from a physical perspective, as awesome as that is, because all creation does it. We worship the Father, as Jesus said, in spirit. God is spirit, and you are too. And we are meant to be in relationship with him intimately in the spirit. So if you're not pursuing that, and you come here and try to jumpstart your worship on Sunday morning, you may really think it's pretty good, but you're actually in a spiritual wasteland. You think this is good. Tozer uses that. I remember in my, I I talk about this grace awakening. One of the things that really struck me as I read Tozer, I'd been raised in the church. I was traveling as a Christian concert artist. I love the Lord just had my first child, things were wonderful, but I was really hungry inside. And one of the things Tozer talks about is Christians who believe they're experiencing all that their life is meant to experience. And they think they're in the land of blessing, but if they just open their eyes to what life was meant to be with this intimate pursuit of God, they would realize that compared to what God has for them, What they think is great is a wasteland. It's a spiritual wasteland. It's a desert compared to the wealth and abundance of joy that is ours in the pursuit of God. The idea here is that worship is not just a Sunday morning experience. Worship is our life. So if you just come here on Sunday morning and say, get my worship on, and you, you trust in us to bring that inspiration out of you, well, you're not doing your part. Sunday morning ought to be when all of us come having been in passionate pursuit of God all week. We come and all of our separate streams of spirituality come together and form this giant river of praise to God. Sunday morning should be the crescendo when we gather out of lives of worship. Without that, your Sunday experience of God will always be less. It will always be dependent on what others provide for you. And with it, you could show up at any church service and meet God. Yeah. How do I become a true worshiper? Get to know the true God. Not just knowledge, although we desperately need knowledge. Get into relationship with him, which is only possible through Jesus Christ, right? So important. I remember sitting outside Tommy's room when we we were trying to get him to settle and go to sleep on his own. And I'd sit out there and I'd read Tozer and I'd bawl. I thought I was experiencing the Christian life and, and it's good But suddenly I saw what it could be. I want that for us. I want that for you. More importantly, God wants that for you. Let those who glory, glory in this, that they understand and know Me. He doesn't just leave it there. He actually gives us an outline Of what it means to understand and know him he gives us the syllabus for understanding him he goes on and he says i am the lord who exercises kindness justice and righteousness on the earth for in these i delight declares the lord there's two names here that are used i am That's the name that God uses to describe himself to Moses, and that is used throughout the Old Testament. You know, there are many names for God, but most of them are meant to be descriptives. Many of the other names, people gave God because of a way that God acted in their lives. So it would be like me saying, well, I'm Thomas, but my descriptive names are awesome husband and dad. faithful friend I'm an average golfer not a very good name there are the descriptive names of God but then there are the names that God chooses and, and God uses too I am and that's the self-existent one that's the otherness that's the mystery that's the God who has always been he is the uncaused cause of all things and he has always been and ever will be I am that I am. And then he uses the name the Lord, Yahweh. And that's his personal name. It was so sacred to the Jewish people that they actually didn't say it. Every time they came to it in the holy text, they would replace it with Adonai. When it was uttered by the high priest, for instance, in the Holy of Holies, they took the syllables out of it And they would just breathe the consonants, yo, hey, wah, hey. So precious of a name. That's how they treated it, and that's okay. It's okay that it's seen as sacred. But what it really means is that God has individuality. It implies that He can be known and related to. That's what He's saying. You need to understand that I am, I'm the mysterious God who has always been, I'm the uncaused cause of all things. I got a name. I'm going to break out in some Jim Croce here if I'm not careful. (laughs) I got a name. I can be known. So that's the first thing we see, that God wants us to understand and know about him. But then he goes on. What's the next thing he says? That I am the Lord who exercises, what are those three words? Kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. Here, God gives us an outline for the things that he delights most in about what he does in relation to the human race and earth. Let's just look at those quickly. Kindness is actually the word in Hebrew for covenant loyalty. It's not speaking about our idea of God. When we we just define God with one description, God is love. If that's your one word definition of God, that's not the God we're supposed to worship. Now, is God love? Right answer. (laughs) Is God only love? No, in fact, is love the primary word God uses to describe himself? Felicia read a scripture of Isaiah's vision of the heavenly throne. And he hears a song that God wrote for those beings that are closest to him to sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Next week we'll explore how that revelation blew his mind and heart. Changed him forever. But centuries later, the Apostle John is drawn up into heaven before the throne of God. And there are those creatures. And you know what they're singing? Verse 2. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. And John says they are forever singing it. So just think about this. God wrote a song. He created beings who serve no other purpose except around His throne to sing this song. And what is the word He chose to describe Himself? What is it? Holy. So when we just look at kindness as sort of like this, well, everybody, you know, God loves everybody. You know, everybody will get in. He's just very patient. You know, we don't know better. That's not the full nature of God. Covenant loyalty means God shows kindness to those who don't deserve kindness but have been brought into his covenant relationship through Christ. And that's why he talks about the second thing, kindness, justice. Justice is righteous judgment. And judgment isn't just decisions, knowing right from wrong. We're not talking about just discernment. We're talking about acting like a judge, pronouncing guilt and innocence and conveying sentence. And what God is saying is that every decision I make with every human being in every circumstance is always the right judgment. It's the right pronouncement. And then the third thing he says is righteousness and what that means is that god's actions are always consistent with his judgments and with his character kindness justice and righteousness it's hard apart from the christian faith to see those as fitting together you know so much of religion today is about just kindness everybody gets there or Justice and righteousness, that's the problem with ISIS and radical Islam. It's also the problem with radical fundamentalist Christianity. It's all about God's judgment. Here's how this fits with the gospel. Without the redemptive work of Christ, God's justice would require our punishment. The wages of sin is separation from God. It's spiritual death. And so were God to act justly apart from the work of the cross, Scripture says we perish. But God loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin, that was Jesus, to become sin for us so that in him we become the righteousness of God. And so because of our covenant relationship with God and his loyalty to that covenant, even though apart from Christ we deserve a different kind of judgment, in Christ we are judged as righteous. And because we are righteous, we can have relationship with a God who himself always acts righteously. See how that works? And then he closes by saying, in these I take delight. What does he mean by that? I think it could mean one of two things. He could first mean people who glory in understanding and knowing him. And if that's true, what he's basically saying is it's those people that he receives worship from. I delight in people who make it their heart's ambition to understand and know me. But he could also be saying he delights in The fact that in relation to the human race, he exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. Both work, because both work both ways. We are to glory in the knowledge of that. That's the basis for our worship. It allows us to worship God. It allows him to receive worship of us. And because God is delighted in those things, we should be delighted in them. That's what we are called to do. We're going to explore this a little more over the next couple of weeks. What would it mean to really come to understand and know God? Because nothing is more important to true worship than this. Before we move on to other things, we're going to spend time with this. But let's look at the idea again. Say it with me. It's not enough to worship the God we know. We must know the God we are to worship. And that's why the Apostle Paul says this. It is my ambition to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings becoming like him even in his death. That's a man who understands what his life is about and will pursue it to the very end. Let's pray. Lord, let this be our ambition to boast about, to take glory in the fulfillment of that singular thing for which we were created. To be worshippers of you by understanding you. Forgive us, Father, for our laziness in terms of that. For taking for granted that we can understand who you are just by our experience of you. Drive us to your revelation, to your word, Father. And to be in relationship with you. There is no more important intimacy that we can have than the one with our Father made possible through Christ. And so, Father, like Paul, we say it is our ambition to know Him. Renew that commitment in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.